Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. We're actually coming close to the conclusion of this book of the Bible. It's been a long, but I hope uh, profitable and edifying uh, study, sermon, series through this book. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that uh, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gave the promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Many people uh, see that as the church uh, on the defensive with the gates of hell um, attacking the church. That's, uh, that's the wrong image. The gates are defensive in nature. They keep enemies out. The picture is of the church advancing and the kingdom advancing and the gates shall not prevail against it. Christ and his cause will be victorious. For instance, we sing in the song, Stand up for Jesus, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. The question this morning is, are you in the battle? Are you in the battle? Let's pray and read God's word. Father, we come to your word this morning and uh, yearn for you to lead us and to guide us by your word and spirit. We pray that you would speak to us, and we pray that you would encourage us, as well as exhort us, uh, to greater faithfulness to you, the God of our salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 6, I know some of you are going to be astonished by this, but I'm actually going to deal with the whole subject of spiritual warfare in one sermon. (laughs) So, Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. (coughs) Excuse me. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I am very thankful to uh, Graham Cole uh, and the book he has written about spiritual warfare Uh, for much of the material uh, which I'm going to relate to you today, so I want to give credit where credit is due. Four points to the sermon. First of all, the peril Christians face. Secondly, the purpose that Paul calls for here. Thirdly, the panoply which he sets forth. And fourthly, the practice of spiritual warfare that you and I should be engaged in. Again, are you in the battle? 
First of all, the peril. Paul reminds Christians and the Christian church about the spiritual warfare that you and I are engaged in. Look at verse 11. Then you may take your stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil are twofold and ever always twofold. It's to remove Christians from the world by persecution and killing them, and it's, or it's to remove Christians from the word to get them to compromise, sacrifice, and become unfaithful. Those are ever and always the two schemes of the devil. And it's the spiritual warfare which we are engaged in. Look at verse 12 as we see that it is a cosmic conflict. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have repeatedly reminded you that the book of Ephesians is a book dealing with Christ affecting or bringing about cosmic reconciliation. That is the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth by the blood of his cross and that eventually there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. But the battle is ongoing. It's a cosmic conflict against the purposes and against the plan of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely it's futile, but it is going on nonetheless. This is the peril that you and I face. And again, are you engaged in the battle? Many Christians seem to be unaware that there is a war in progress. Are you engaged in the battle? There's a war. What soldier would ever go off overseas with his weapons and act the way many Christians act in the, space, uh, in the face of the conflict in which we are daily to be engaged? Nobody. They would be, they would be cited for dereliction of duty. They would be court-martialed if they were to do that. Many Christians seem to be unaware that there's a war in progress. And it's not just the devil. Yes, the devil is our mighty foe. He goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we're, our battle, verse 12, is against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. This is perilous. The context which Paul sets forth as he peels back the clouds to give us a gaze into what's actually happening in the uh, realms of the universe is that there is a cosmic conflict going on in which Christians in the church are engaged. Are you? Notice Paul is speaking to the church, not just individual Christians. Therefore, spiritual warfare is not to be conducted alone. You can't be a lone ranger Christian and survive this conflict. You cannot go into battle apart from the church. Somebody came up to me after last week and gave me a note and said, doesn't this call for a battalion? Amen, it most certainly does. This is not just one soldier individually, as if religion only had to do with my relationship with Jesus Christ. We're an army. We're together. We're a battalion engaged in this battle. And we may not, we cannot, we ought not to engage in it alone. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Are you engaged in the battle? It's a perilous battle. 
Secondly, the purpose for which Paul writes. Four times we have stand firm set forth here. Look at verse 11. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And then verse 14, stand therefore. Why is Paul writing to the church, to you and to me, about this spiritual warfare, about this cosmic conflict? He says, I want you to stand. If the gates of hell are not to prevail against the church, if the church as a battalion, as an army, marching as to war with the banner of Christ set before us, then you need to be able to stand. You need to be able to withstand. You need to be steadfast. You need to be unyielding. You need to be uncompromising. Paul's concern is for Christian stability, for you to be strong and stable, not weak and wobbly. Strong and stable in your character. Strong and stable in your conduct. And so, as he talks about the pearl, sets the scene, the context, for you and for me. And as he sets forth his purpose, that indeed we may be able to stand in this battle. He goes on to detail the panoply. If you're not familiar with that word, I had to look it up myself, all right? Panoply is simply, all right, the whole armor, the whole armor, okay? It's used of a heavily armed soldier, the panoply of weapons or armament that a soldier has, okay? And that's what Paul sets out here as he talks about the whole armor of God. Now, I am well aware that William Gurnall wrote a book on the whole armor of God. Joshua Janier can tell you about it because he's all read all 1,700 pages of it, all right? Or Martin Lloyd-Jones was given to long series of sermons. I guess I'm given to long series of sermons, all right? I think he wrote like, I, I think he had like 172 sermons on the whole armor of God. By God's grace, I'm going to try to do it in one, all right? I'm going to try to do it in one, all right? <clears throat> All right. First of all, the armor that Paul is talking about here is derived from the armor used by God himself. If you turn, and don't turn there, we don't have time this morning, but if you look at Isaiah chapter 11, or if you look at Isaiah chapter 59, it talks about God himself as a warrior. Very interested, this is one of the reasons why Christians need not be pacifists, right? God himself is a warrior that's engaged in battle for us. And that ought to be a great encouragement, right? Is that Jesus Christ, right, is the victorious conqueror. He has entered into mortal combat with Satan at the cross of Calvary. And he has crushed his skull. He has defeated that foe. He has decisively won the victory over death, over Satan, and over hell. And yet, as we noted last week, the battle continues until Jesus consummates that victory with his return right? But Christ is victorious. He is the victorious warrior portrayed by Isaiah. And the armor that Paul is speaking of is derived from God's armor in those passages in Isaiah. You can look at them later. The point is God shares those same weapons, that same armor with you. What a gracious God. He doesn't just say, I'm fighting for you. He doesn't just say, I go before you, don't worry about a thing. He does. But he says, no, 
the armor that I myself wear, the armor with which I have engaged in battle and conflict, that armor I'm going to give to you. This is divinely supplied armor here. All right? There are six main pieces. The belt, the breastplate, the boots, the shield, the helmet, and the sword. Right? They are pictures, if you will, of truth, righteousness, the good news of peace or the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. So let's look at them briefly. All right? First of all, we're told... Uh, having fastened on the belt of truth. William Gurnall is a profitable read. I'd encourage you to read it. Um, we just I'm not going to take 1,700 pages to do that. But, but Gurnall writes this about the belt of truth. What is this truth, he writes? Some, by truth, mean a truth of doctrine, doctrinal truth, right teaching. Others will have a truth of heart, that is, sincerity. I am a true, sincere person. They, I think, best that comprise both. One will not do without the other. That is, it is both having true teaching, right doctrine, and having sincerity of heart with respect to that. It's both. So we have to fasten on the uh, belt of truth. Secondly, we have the breastplate of righteousness. All right? Fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Ordinarily, not always, but ordinarily when we see righteousness in the Bible, it's a reference to justification. All right? If that's a big word that's unfamiliar to you, it's simply the act by which God declares a sinner made right with himself and grants to him the righteousness of his son. All right? That is that Jesus Christ has died in the place of sinners, has paid the penalty for the sins of a sinner on the cross of Calvary, so that a sinner's sin is transferred to Jesus Christ. He takes it, he bears the penalty, the punishment, and he gives to the sinner his righteousness, his perfect obedience, if you will. All right? So, we put on the breastplate of righteousness, a right relationship with God. And I would simply ask you, as you sit here this morning, are you in a right relationship with God? I'm not asking, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus, all right, although that's a valid question, all right? I'm asking you, do you have a right relationship with God? Has God, in the person of his Son, taken your sin upon himself and paid the wages of sin, which is death? Or does that inevitability await you? You see, the Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall die. God can't just wink at sin. God can't overlook sin. He doesn't grade on a curb and say, well, you tried hard, I'll just overlook it. No, the soul that sins, it must die. The wages of sin are death. Has Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins? And has he guaranteed to you his righteousness? Are you in a right relationship with God? Are you able to take that breastplate of righteousness upon yourself? It's a valuable and necessary piece of armor, you see. And following that, we see that there is uh, not only the uh, belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, but as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Well, what's this talking about? One author uh, in... uh, 
Warren Thorpe's favorite book, Charles Stott's commentary on Ephesians, uh, says, says this. He says, there can be no doubt that we should always be ready to bear witness to Jesus Christ as God's peacemaker, but also, as Paul writes in a parallel passage in Colossians, to give gracious, though salty, answers to the questions which outsiders put to us. Such tiptoe readiness has a very stabilizing influence on our own lives, as well as introducing others to the liberating gospel. So I Look at Colossians 4, just so you know what I'm talking about. Look at Colossians chapter 4. It's the parallel letter to Ephesians. We've looked at it many times to help us understand and explain what Paul is getting at in Ephesians by the clearer passage in Colossians, the parallel letter. Colossians chapter 4, very interesting passage in a number of respects. I'll try to restrain myself in my comments here, but... Colossians 4, verse 5. Notice the exhortation being given to Christians here. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. It's very interesting. The Bible actually uses the term outsiders. Christians are those inside. We are God's covenant people. We are part of the people of God. We are the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, right? But there are those that are not, and they're outside. And Paul here says walk, which is a reference to how one conducts oneself, And he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And then verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Are you, are you, are you engaged in the battle? Are you in a right relationship with God? Are you putting on the shoes for your feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace? If somebody came up to you when you left church today and said, I see you're leaving a Christian church, could you tell me what the good news is that you Christians talk about? Or if you were to ask somebody, I've done this numerous times in personal interactions, ask people, what's the gospel? Would you know the answer to that question? What is the gospel? Are you able to convey that message of peace? Are you able to convey that message of salvation? Are you, as one sinner saved by grace, able to lead another sinner to be saved by grace by responding positively to the message of God's good news of Jesus Christ? That's putting on those shoes that Paul is talking about here. All right? The shield of faith is next. Simply, the shield of faith is believing the promises of God. Now, I'm sure every Christian here would say, of course I believe the promises of God. My eternal destiny rests on believing the promise of God that if I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, I'll be saved. Well, I hope you're believing that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? All right, that's good. But there are thousands of promises. There are thousands of promises which are to be utilized, all right, in this spiritual warfare. There are times in spiritual warfare, and we've dealt with it many times in this pulpit, when the the devil comes and he sits on your shoulder and he leads you to doubt. Doubt you're a Christian. Doubt, Doubt that God would want anything to do with you. Or there are times when... The spiritual warfare gets maybe more malevolent and more insidious and more internal where he leads you to depression. 
I'm not saying depression is always a spiritual problem. Don't misunderstand me. But oftentimes it is. Anger, internalized, can lead to depression. Failure to believe the promises of God, instead succumb to the promises of the world or the promises of the devil, can lead to depression. We're on the losing side. We're being overwhelmed. It's getting worse and worse, darker and darker, bleaker and bleaker. Oh, woe is me. It's then that the shield of faith comes, the promises of God, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the devil. I often refer, and I've done this for a number of you in this congregation, to the Psalms, where the psalmist writes, Why are you downcast, O my soul, within me? What's the psalmist doing? He's talking to himself. And what is he, what is he doing? He's, he's engaging and utilizing the promises of God. Forget not the Lord and all his benefits. To battle doubt. To battle depression. Take the shield of faith. Believe God's promises. Take those promises and put them into practice. Or the power of God against temptation. Remember last week and in previous weeks, numerous times, I referred to you Paul's prayer for the Ephesians at the beginning of the book. He says, I pray that you may know the inestimable power. What power? The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's Paul's prayer for you. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10.31? No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And along with the temptation, God will provide a way out. That temptation comes and it seems so strong. It seems so powerful. And I know some of you have said to me, Pastor, you don't understand. You don't know. I most certainly do know I'm a sinner just like you. I know the power of sin. I know the power of temptation. Paul says, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Paul says, I want you to know the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You don't have to succumb. You don't have to give in. Believe the promise. God will provide a way out. He will. He's promised. His honor, his name is attached to that promise. And then lastly, not lastly, next, penultimately, he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Charles Hodge wrote of this, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he is saved. And we might add that he knows his salvation will be final, perfected, assured. I think it's a helpful spiritual exercise to engage in every once in a while. To just get alone with God. And say, God, thank you that you saved me. Thank you that I am saved. I am saved from the horrors of hell. I am saved from the penalty of sin. I am saved from the power of sin. And thank God, thank you, Lord, that one day I shall be saved from the presence of sin. I am a saved woman. I am a saved man. Thank God. The helmet. Of salvation. And lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You and I are engaged in a battle. It's a perilous battle. It's a cosmic conflict. And you're to wage it with the sword of the Spirit. There's this one song that says, Christian, you can't lose if you use your sword. Do you have a firm grip on this book? Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? It's the sword of the Spirit. Remember years ago I was teaching at RYS, Pastor Dan, take a lesson here, be bold when you go, all right? I was talking to young men, the title of the sectional was Punk or Prince, are you a punk or a prince? I had to call these guys out, I played... Who's Lecrae? At the beginning of the session, I had Lecrae on. Will he believe I listen to Lecrae? <laughs> really doesn't believe it. I had Lecrae on as they're walking in the room. Are you a punk or are you a prince? Right? I had to tell these guys to man up. Man up. Right? I told them, get out your Bibles at the beginning of the seminar. Well, a bunch of these guys didn't have Bibles. I said, go get your Bible. Don't come here with no Bible. Would you go to war with no weapon? Go get your Bible. Scurrying out to get their Bibles. Be bold, Pastor Dan. Call these guys, right? Go get your Bible. No soldier goes to war without a weapon. Sword of the Spirit. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? And then, that's not all. Look at verse 18. Prayer. Prayer. Notice the universal language, the number of times that all is uttered. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Prayer. The kingdom of God advances on its knees. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They're spiritual weapons which have power to demolish every thought which raises itself against the knowledge of God and to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Prayer. Are you a man or a woman of prayer? We have struggled in this congregation with prayer meetings for our entire history, almost 20 years. We have tried every form, tried to get people together to pray on Sunday, tried to get people together to pray on Thursday. We've tried when people can't get together to do it by telephone. Now we're trying to do it by Zoom. It continues to be the least attended meeting in the church. Now, I don't want to guilt you into this, all right? Maybe, maybe you're praying every morning, maybe you're praying at home, maybe you're praying with your spouse or your children or your family. Thank God, good thing, all right, I'm not intending to make you guilty at all, but I was at a conference last week, I was speaking out uh, in uh, Illinois, Indiana, somewhere out there, and it was a conference for pastors. I asked the pastors, I said, do you experience the same thing in your churches? Is prayer the least attended meeting in your churches? Every one of them said yes. And yet the kingdom of God advances on its knees. If we wouldn't go to war without a weapon, we can't go to war without prayer. 
without prayer. And again, I hope you're praying. Let's look at a little practice. How do we practice this spiritual warfare? Well, notice Paul does not say go on a search and destroy mission for the devil. All right? First thing is don't be ignorant. Keith Green, probably the only Christian music I listen to and like, he has a lyric in one of his songs. He says, he says about the devil, he says, nobody believes in me anymore. He said, I make great advances. I make great progress with people because nobody believes in me anymore. Do you believe in the devil? Don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant. The devil goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Are you ready to pray because of your ignorance? Secondly, I want to return to this two schemes of the devil. Look at verse 11. Then you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What are the two schemes? Separate Christians from the world by killing them. You realize that more Christians have suffered persecution in the 20th century than in the 19th centuries combined previously. 21st century as well. I would encourage you to read some of the material in various organs of communication about persecuted Christians around the world. We are extremely blessed. You know, we talk about being persecuted by our families because they look at us strange, right? We talk about being persecuted in the workplace because we dare to mention the name of Jesus or show our Bible. Realize people get killed for that in other parts of the world. And worse, they get their tongues cut out. They get their eyes plucked out. They get their throats slit just for doing what we're doing here today, right? Separate Christians from the world. Kill them. That's a scheme of the devil. Persecution is demonic. The other scheme of the devil is to separate Christians from the word. How successful is that? Is Satan having success with you? By separating you from the word? You see, when doubt, when temptation comes, when the devil enters into that one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat, do you have ammunition ready to fight? Do you have that, that sword of the Spirit to call on, ready at hand, to get out and to pray, Lord, help me. I'm sinking. Schemes of the devil. Goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read that, it's a marvelous book, allegory, right? He paints a great picture of the devil in that book on a leash because Christ has conquered him at the cross. But, as anybody who has gone to a rabid dog or a trapped animal, even if they're on a leash, they can still cause a lot of damage if you get too close. 
schemes of the devil. Look at 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. James puts it this way. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't need to have a magical incantation You don't need to have some formula by which exorcisms are performed. You don't need to know the secret of spiritual warfare as if only a handful of elite Christians knew it. Here's spiritual warfare. Resist him and he'll flee from you. And James says in the very next verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. People tell me, I just feel far from God. Well, you know what? God's in the same place he was yesterday. God's in the same place he's always been. If you feel far from God, it's not because God has moved. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist him. Resist the devil. Turn back to Ephesians verse 20. Paul says, pray for me that I may proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador and change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, we have a variety of personalities in the Christian church, and that's perfectly fine. Some of us... Some of us are more confrontational than others. Some are more reserved. We admit of a variety of personalities. Everybody's not the same. It would be a boring world if we were all the same. But Paul here says, he says, pray that I may be bold. And you should pray for boldness as well. You're on the winning side. You don't have to cower before the enemy. You don't have to capitulate. You don't have to compromise. Be bold. Develop. Cultivate. Pray for boldness in your stand for the gospel. This is why it's critically important to know what you believe and why. Remember Jesus in his confrontation with the devil uh, in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4? There's a whole lot going on there, all right, which I can't get into at the moment. Jesus is the second Adam. He succeeds where the first Adam uh, failed, all right? That's kind of the big picture. But remember when Satan came to him? Three times he tempted him. How did Jesus answer? He quoted Deuteronomy. It is written. It is written. It is written. And the devil fled. Now, I know I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus, but take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Verse 18, next, prayer, prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Many people have commented on this particular section of the book of Ephesians that it's defensive in nature. I disagree. The whole tenor of the New Testament is offensive. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. 
Jesus Christ entered into combat with Satan and defeated him. He is risen, he is reigning, he is the king of kings, he is the lord of lords, and he must reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. That is not defensive. So we put on the armor, and what are the weapons? The word of God in prayer. The word of God in prayer. Do you know, if you study, I'll tell you because you pay me to study, all right? Do you know that every revival in the history of the Christian church has, been, has come about by these two means? Preaching and prayer. Preaching and prayer. The word of God and prayer. When the church was at its deadest, when it was at its most moribund, people, faithful Christians, went to church. They gave God the glory to his name. They heard God's word. And then all of a sudden, the spirit was poured out in great measure. And the gospel was preached and people prayed. In Knox's Scotland, Knox said it was as if the skies rained men. As a revival came. Wouldn't you like to see that when you go to Scotland, Kurt? Amen, right? The word of God in prayer. Offensive weapons. Every revival in the history of the church. Let us be a people that wield the sword of the spirit and pray. The kingdom advances on its knees. Fifthly, I've encouraged you, exhorted you to be bold, but don't be proud. It's very interesting that the only time Jesus ever describes himself, he describes himself as humble in Matthew chapter 11. For I am meek and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. As disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, those washed in his blood, those who follow him as soldiers of the cross, were called to that very same humility. Why do I say particularly beware of pride? Pride was the sin of the devil. When you look at those passages in the Bible which refer to most likely the fall of Satan from the angelic host at creation, it was because he desired to be greater than what God had created him to be. He was not content to be a creature. He wanted to be equal with the creator. And when he came to Adam and Eve, he, he touched on their pride. Did God really say, you decide whether God's true or I'm right. You decide who's telling you the truth. You be the boss. Pride. The sin of the devil. How often the Bible talks about pride. We should be bold Christians. But we ought not to be obnoxious Christians. They're a stain on the cause of Christ. Beware of pride. Humility is vital for spiritual warfare. And then particular sins. Particular sins beware of in spiritual warfare. Paul's already warned us. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Turn back. Verses 26 and 27. You may recall it wasn't that long ago. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And interestingly, look at what he says. 
and give no opportunity for the devil. You ever put those two together? The devil establishes a toehold with anger. Unresolved anger becomes a foothold. And if anger is not resolved, it becomes a stronghold. And if it continues, it becomes a stranglehold. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because it gives the devil an opportunity. This is spiritual warfare. You see, it's not about exorcisms. It's not about incantations. It's not about magical mystery experiences. Anger. Spiritual warfare. John Stott says, Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil for he knows how fine is the line between righteous and unrighteous anger and how hard human beings find it to handle their anger responsibly. So Satan loves to lurk around angry people, hoping to be able to exploit the situation to his own advantage by provoking them into hatred or violence or breach of fellowship. Another one, lack of forgiveness. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2. This apparently is the person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was guilty of an incestuous relationship. Paul says, hand him over to Satan. Apparently he's, been, he's repentant, and Paul is now writing to the Corinthian church to restore him. All right? So that's kind of what's going on here, right? Uh, verse 5, If anyone is called and paid, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure to all of you. Such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What, what magnificent pastoral care is exercised here by Paul? He, he says, look, look, we handed him over to Satan. He's been outside the covenant. He's been out of the church. He's been subject to all the vagaries of evil and satanic influence. He's suffered enough. Welcome him back. Welcome him back. So I beg you, verse 8, to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And here it is. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And look at verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. I remember hearing years ago when I was in Michigan of a deathbed, deathbed, deathbed testimony of a minister of the gospel who had been in a church conflict that was exceedingly divisive. It rendered the denomination of which he was a part. A new denomination formed. Somebody that had been in the opposing side 
heard that he was on his deathbed, came to him and said, before you go, I desire to be reconciled. He wouldn't forgive him. He took that grudge, which was decades long, to the grave. Lack of forgiveness is being outwitted by Satan. Why? Because the gospel is a message of forgiveness. What offense is so great that it cannot be forgiven? You think you were hurt? You think you were wronged? You think you were violated? How much did you hurt, wrong, and violate God by your sin? Can you hear Jesus as he hangs on the cross, undergoing the horrors of hell for that sin? Can you hear him? Can you see him? See from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and love flow, mingle down. And hear him say, Father, forgive them. Do not be outwitted by Satan. Paul Barnett says, Satan who is ever ready to destroy churches, will in the absence of love and forgiveness quickly bring bitterness and division. Now that the man has turned from his evil ways, it's important that he and the group who support him be reconciled through forgiveness with the main body of the congregation. My friends, we are in a war. It is perilous. Do not minimize, underestimate, deny or dismiss the peril of the conflict. Christ is risen and reigning. He has defeated Satan. We are on the winning side. But you must be engaged in the battle. Put on the armor of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Pray for the kingdom advances on its knees. And Jesus' promise will be realized in your life, in our life, in Messiah's Reformed Fellowship's life, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, help us. We are needy people. We are but mere creatures. We need your divine assistance and your heavenly aid. Grant it to us, strengthen us, encourage us, and send us forth as emissaries of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. In his name and for Christ's sake, amen and amen.